Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year, for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Bradley Tusk is the author of Obvious in Hindsight, a novel. Bradley is a venture capitalist, political strategist, philanthropist, and writer. He is the CEO and co-founder of Tusk Ventures, the world's first venture capital fund that invests solely in early-stage startups in highly regulated industries, and the founder of political consulting firm Tusk Strategies. Bradley's family foundation is funding and leading the national campaign to bring mobile voting to all U.S. elections. Tusk Philanthropies also runs and funds anti-hunger campaigns that have led to the creation of anti-hunger policies and programs, including universal school breakfast programs in 20 different states, helping to feed over 12 million people. Bradley is the author of The Fixer, My Adventures Saving Startups from Death by Politics and Obvious in Hindsight. 
He hosts a podcast called Firewall about the intersection of tech and politics and is the co-founder of the Gotham Book Prize. He recently opened a bookstore, podcast studio, event space, and cafe called PNT Knitwear on Manhattan's Lower East Side, which, by the way, I'm going to have my launch event for Blank there on March 5th, I think. So come down and see me. He is also an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School. Previously, Bradley served as campaign manager for Mike Bloomberg's 2009 mayoral race as deputy governor of Illinois, overseeing the state's budget, operations, legislation, policy, and communications as communications director for U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer and as Uber's first political advisor. Welcome, Bradley. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your book, Obvious in Hindsight. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. You're welcome. You're obviously so much more than just an author, although I think that's a pretty big deal. I'm excited to talk about your bookstore and your whole career and everything. But first, Obvious in Hindsight, tell listeners why this book and when are we supposed to expect flying cars? I don't know. Yeah. So first of all, flying cars are, are coming sooner and sooner than, than we think. When I started this project, it was like, what would be a fantastical thing to write about? And like, since then, they've made insane progress. So they're starting to get permits for testing and things like that. But the book is about a campaign to legalize flying cars in New York, Los Angeles, and Austin. Uh, on one side is the flying car startup and their vicious political consultants. And on the other side is Uber the Audubon Society, the socialists, the transit workers, and the Russian mob. And the point of the book is to try to show people in a hopefully very fun way, here's why decisions are really made in politics. Here's how decisions are really made in tech. And if you want to be in a position to understand what's going on and potentially do something about it, you have to know how these people actually think. And that's what I try to show in the book based on the fact that I spent the first 20 years of my career in politics and now run a venture capital fund. So I kind of live both of those worlds. What is surprising? What would we not know about the from the politicians and everybody? Like people have kind of a, you get kind of a bad rap, right? <laughs> it, well, it, it may be deserved actually, but um, <laughs> but I would say you know I I've worked in city government, state government, federal government, legislative branch, executive branch. I'm a lawyer. Like I've really seen this thing from every conceivable angle, and the lesson's pretty simple: every policy output is the result of a political input. Every politician makes every decision solely based on re-election and nothing else. And if they think that you can either help them win their next election or if they don't do what you want, it could potentially cost them their next election, then you, they'll work with you. And if you can't convince them of one of those two things, you are irrelevant. And I wish human nature were different than that. And sure, there are exceptions. I worked for Mike Bloomberg for a long time. He's clearly an exception to it. But by and large, this is how politicians are. This is how politics work. And if we want different outputs, we got to change the inputs. That's so depressing. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to believe it's not that, but it is. No, it is. Okay. It is. All right. Well, great. When you thought about turning this idea and this, you know, the whole book is like a show, don't tell, right? It's like, how do you exhibit all of these things? How did you come up with this particular thing? And then what was the most fun to write about? Yeah. So I originally it started off as a TV show. So I was working with um, Steven Soderbergh, the, the movie director, on a totally political thing that he needed to get done from a regulatory standpoint for a liquor company that he owns. And at the time, I had written my first book, The Fixer, which was a memoir about my time in tech and politics. And the galley came out and I gave it to Stephen and said, hey, I would just love your opinion. He said, okay, I'm flying to London tonight. I'll read on the plane. I'll let you know. 
And I wake up the next morning and he says, we got to make this a TV show. I'm like, amazing. Steven Soderbergh wants to make a TV show with me. Like, that's the greatest thing ever. I started thinking about, okay, what would a fictionalized version of The Fixer look like? And I knew it had to be around some kind of campaign because you can tell a really good story around a specific campaign. And Flying Cars at the time was like, okay, it's it's not impossible, but it's also not happening tomorrow. So it can be sort of a fun way to go about this and still show how politics really works but in a really entertaining way. So uh, I wrote the pilot with Steven, then wrote the next nine episodes. And we had our big meeting at Apple TV to pitch them the show on May, March 10th, 2020. Oh, um, no. Know, yeah, a little bit of a global pandemic in the way. And the show kind of went away. But I really loved the characters and the concept. And so I decided to try to convert into a novel and started working on it and worked on it and worked on it. You've written novels, so you know how this is. And eventually got to a point where somebody wanted to publish it. And, you know, I'm really excited. <laughs> well, I don't know why you can't just bring back the whole show. Is it really too uh, late? Well, no, no, we're, we're working on it right now. Okay, good, good. Yeah. Not like you needed my encouragement for that, but I'll just throw yeah, my But don't know why. It's nice, nice to hear. Okay, yeah. all right. Great. And in fact, if the book reads a little bit like a script, that's why. It was written that way first. Interesting. Go back a little bit. How did you, when did you get into the whole political sphere? Did you ever want to just be the president? And have you given up on that? Like, have you, are you so jaded now? I think I've I've given up on being president. (laughs) So look, I mean, I think when I was a kid, I just had this strong view, mainly in large part, I think I was just sort of this misfit that didn't really fit anywhere, that I didn't want to live sort of an ordinary life where you have a good job and live in the suburbs and have two and a half kids and retire at 65 to play golf or whatever it is. That, that just didn't interest me. And I kind of felt like it would be more meaningful and interesting to me if whatever I did kind of had a broader impact on the world. And politics was clearly the way to do that. And so... I got to politics in a really lucky way. In 1992, this is a lot, I'm dating myself, but the Democratic Convention was at Madison Square Garden in New York. And I was 18 years old, had just finished my freshman year of college, and my family are immigrants. You know, we don't know anybody, any money, anything like that. But my dad had a friend who was a lawyer for the Carpenters Union, and this guy, Brian O'Dwyer, was a lovely man, a new I like politics. And he called me and said, hey, would you like a one-day pass to the convention, a Carpenters Pass? And I said, sure. So... If you look in the newspaper, it says convention noon to midnight. Having now been to a few of these, it's really like 8 to 10 p.m. <laughs> but I didn't know that, right? So I show up at noon at the garden and it's empty, right? It's like two dudes running for state rep in Montana speaking. And for some reason, Ed Rendell, who at the time was the mayor of Philadelphia, was sitting in the audience by himself. I was kind of pretty nervous, but I was like, you know what? He's a Jewish guy from New York originally. So am I. He's the mayor of Philly. I just finished my my freshman year at Penn, so I lived in Philly. And I said, let me just go say hi. What's the worst that could happen? And Rendell, of course, was probably just literally talking out loud to the empty chair until someone showed up anyways. He was happy to have an audience. And we talked for 15 minutes or so. He said, look, when you get back to school, are you really busy? And I said, no, not not particularly. So it's like an internship. I said, that'd be amazing. He said, okay, send me a note. We'll set it up. So I go home. I write a letter. And every day I'm checking the mailbox. And what I know now but didn't know then is that correspondence is the black hole of government. Everything goes in, nothing comes out. And so I never hear back. And I get back to school. And this is a decade before 9-11, so security is not what it is today. And just to kind of show you how naive I was, I just thought, all right, I'll just go see him. So I showed up at City Hall and started wandering around. And I found like his outer office. And I said, is the mayor here? 
And they kind of looked at me like, that's a crazy question to ask, right? Because you can't just show up and ask that. And the people who do are either are genuinely crazy or they're protesting. And I wasn't protesting anything. And I didn't look genuinely crazy. And these old ladies from South Philly, and they were like, well, uh, he's not here, but you know, you can leave him a note. So I write a note and I explain and then I'm on the subway back to the door. And I'm like, you idiot. You can't just do that. You know, forget it. Cross it off the list. And then get in the dorm. 20 minutes later, the phone rings. And it's Ed Rendell. And he said, when are you coming to work? And he said, I'll be right there. And I worked for him all through college. Oh, my gosh. What a great story. That's amazing. Thanks. And then why venture capital? So spent the first chunk of my career directly in politics, culminating with being Mike Bloomberg's campaign manager when I ran for mayor in 2009. We won. Coming off of that, I started a consulting firm, kind of traditional political consulting firm. So you're Walmart, you're trying to open up stores in four major cities. You've got union issues, zoning issues, community issues. We figure all that stuff out. And I was sitting in a meeting in early 2011, and a friend of mine called and said, hey, there's a guy with a small transportation startup. He's having some regulatory problems. Would you mind talking to him? I become Uber's first political advisor that day. I get really lucky when Travis calls me back and says, listen, I can't afford your fee, which take equity. I had no idea what equity meant, but thank God I said yes. Oh my gosh. Back during the Series A. Spent the next few years mainly running campaigns all over the U.S. to legalize Uber and ride sharing. And it worked. We figured out that we could turn our customers into kind of a political force and mobilize them through the app. Um, did it again for Clear uh, to get them into airports. And then met my partner who was a... He was running Blackstone's internal venture for the time, but you wouldn't know him because that was like very low level because the problem is like they were rounding errors at, at Blackstone in terms of venture capital. And Jordan, you know, wanted to have his own fund. And we started talking about like, if you really understand regulation, you could do something about it. Would that make you a better investor? And kind of off of that thesis and the Uber experience and Jordan's experience at Blackstone, we uh, went out and raised our first fund in 2016. And we're now raising fund four and we invest in all kinds of startups and regulated industries. And we not only give them money, but then we run all of the political efforts for them, whether it's legalizing FanDuel or prescription via text for Roman or getting the insurance licenses for Lemonade or whatever it is. So basically, I live in real life the story that you see in this book. Wow. So you're just like Mr. Red Tape. Like you, if there is red tape, you know how to I take wrap it. myself in yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, it's funny. I, I don't have this sort of like libertarian view that all regulation is inherently bad. I think some is good, some is bad. And when it's regulation aimed at the best interests of the consumer, that's great. Um, what often happens, though, is that whatever entrenched interest is regulated over time builds up so much political power that the regulator, instead of looking out for the average person, looks out for the really crappy taxi owners instead, or the casinos instead, or the hotel lobby instead, or whatever it is. And then there's a big fight because a startup has a better way to do it. And they get a lot of political pressure from the other side. And then we come in and hopefully solve the problem. Hmm. Amazing. I know who to call next time I want to start yep. a business in a regulated industry. Never know when that's going to happen. Yeah, but, but luckily, as I've learned, but other than I think getting like our, our tavern license, still beer and wine at the cafe, I have, have not had to do much politics at, at the bookstore. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, tell me, okay, when did you decide, did you always want a bookstore? I always wanted a bookstore. Yeah, I always wanted one. And then, but you know, until, until Uber, really, I never had any money, right? Like, we didn't grow up with a lot of money. I worked in government, never made a lot of money. And it was just sort of like, wouldn't it be cool? And then all of a sudden, I got lucky and I did make, you know, a pretty good amount of money pretty quickly. And when COVID hit, I started something called the Gotham Book Prize with my friend Howard Wolfson. And we give 50 grand a year to the best book set in New York City that year. And I started working with authors on the jury and, and the nominees and really enjoyed it and said, you know, what else can I do in this space? And at the same time, the city was getting ravaged by COVID. We lost 600,000 jobs. And I kind of realized, like, look, if you're going to do something nice for New York City from a retail perspective, you could do it when you retire, or you could do it right now when the city really needs it. And as led, that led to me finding the space in the Lower East Side and opening a bookstore, and it's got a funny name. And the reason why is when my family came to this country in the 1950s from the refugee camps in Germany, if you were an uneducated Jew and you didn't have you know any other type of job, you could do you could always work in the garment business. And my grandfather and a guy that he knew in the refugee camps both came here around the same time, and they opened a 300 square foot sweater store on Allen Street called P&T Knitwear. When I signed the lease for this place and we're an orchard between Houston and Stanton, I texted my dad and said, where was that original store? Because I knew it was around here somewhere. And he told me, I said, that's the next block over. I said, what was it called again? And he wrote, P&T Knitwear, but you can't name a bookstore P&T Knitwear. So of course, uh, I now own a bookstore called P&T Knitwear, but we are also the only uh, free podcast studio in New York that anyone can use. You just go on our website and sign up for it. Uh, we've got an event space, we've got a cafe, and we're a cool indie bookstore. So it is a labor of love, as, as you well know, but but it's been fun. That's amazing. Oh, I love that so much. Were your grandparents in the concentration camps as well, or they just so my my yeah, so my grandfather, yeah, everyone else was my grandfather. So he grew up in a town called Lutz in Poland, mm-hmm. he was super orthodox, right? And he was the rebel of the family. And his rebellion was to join the Polish army. He was 15, but he lied about his age. And when the Russians invaded Poland, like Poland lost in like 36 hours. And he got captured and sent to Siberia as a prisoner of war, which sounds like the worst possible thing that could happen to you, except all of his like 11 brothers and sisters and parents ended up at Auschwitz and died in the camps. And because the Nazis never made it as far as Siberia, he survived. My grandmother was from Odessa. Her father was, you know, conscripted into the Red Army, died in the war, and they fled the Nazis as the Nazis started coming into Russia, also went to Siberia. She somehow, my grandfather there, the war eventually ended. He was freed. They had my father and kind of made their way 
back across Europe and then ended up in the refugee camps for years in Germany. And then finally, a, uh, a cousin in Brooklyn, you know, sponsored them for a visa and they came here. Oh my gosh. All these stories, you know, these, it's just amazing how life goes one way and not the other way. And oh my so, gosh. by the way, right. So many little variables, like, you know, like I, I've had so much luck and I think about that a lot where like, if this thing went just in one direction instead of the other, or this call didn't happen, or this person wasn't there, you know, who who knows? But it probably wouldn't be this. Wow! When you do your podcast, what are the get? What are the conversations you are most excited to have? So the the thing, my podcast is sort of it's tech politics and the pursuit of happiness, and it's really that intersection of tech regulation politics. So like on a typical episode. You know, the, on the one we did on um, Tuesday, for example, we talked about, uh, I had my chief of staff on, who's sort of a millennial, very left wing, about kind of why the DSA has been pro Hamas. Then I kind of laid out my plan that why New York City should have a city manager. Then I gave, laid out my pedestrian rules for the road uh, of how people in New York City should and should not walk so that we can uh, save a little bit of time. So none of those were actually tech oriented, but usually it's that plus some combination of some big tech thing, whether it's, you know, Tesla or Apple or Amazon or Uber or whatever it is. And then we have guests on, you know, typically either from politics or tech who talk about, you know, the company they're building, the idea they're pursuing, the thing they're trying to change. And, you know, they're very sort of, I'm not, I'm not a journalist by any means. They're sort of very positive interviews. But it's called Firewall. We're on twice a week, about 30 minutes each episode, no no ads. I mean, you can find it on any platform. Amazing. And then when do you find time to read? I'm assuming you do with the bookstore. I read a ton. Yeah. In fact, I read a ton and then I write, I make a list of, I assume you do this also, the books that I read. I finished number 51 this morning. Wow. It was nine nonfiction, 42 fiction. So I read a lot of fiction. The dirty secret is I read a lot on my Kindle as a bookstore owner, I'm really not supposed <laughs> to say that or do that. For me, it is really efficient. Uh, now, I also just walk into the store, grab whatever I want, walk out too. So I read <laughs> paper as well. But yeah, I read a lot of contemporary fiction. In fact, one of those 51 books was, was yours, and which I love. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and, and devoured it, by the way. And it's a wide variety of stuff. It could be sort of stuff that's considered to be, you know, kind of Literary fiction like Demon Copperhead or The Heaven and Earth Must Restore, you know, books that have come out this year that I'm sure you're selling lots of copies of. It could be the book that I finished this morning was the new John Grisham book. I remember loving The Firm when I was really young and read the sequel. And so it's it's mainly fiction. It's mainly contemporary. The other thing I would say is I have a very quick trigger finger. So let's say I end up reading this year 65 books. I will have probably start at 130. Mm-hmm. And by page 40, I'm not into it. I'm out. Uh, my view is life is too short and there are too many books to make myself read something I don't want to read. I have the same philosophy. But if everybody loves a book and I can't figure out why, I, I read a little more. Yeah, <laughs> and then I assume something's... Well, did you read... Um, you don't have The Trust by Hernan Diaz? Did I did it. That? I have to. I just got this well, paperback, actually. So I, I... You know, and look, everyone loved it. It was one of the finalists for the Gotham Book Prize uh, last year. And I didn't dislike it, but I just was like, there must be something wrong with me because why does everyone think this book's so amazing? And I just didn't see it, but you know, it's all subjective. I know. I feel like that a lot too. I'm like, well, I passed on that book and now it's like the biggest seller ever. <laughs> so, but you know what? Those books, I still don't want to read, you know? So it is what it is. It, it's un, in, in a weird way, it's not unlike venture capital, which is, you know, I sometimes pass on companies that go on to be really successful, but it's got to be founders that I want to work with and ideas that I'm interested in. And if I'm not, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. 
So what is your next thing, I, I, your next innovation, your next project? Uh, mo- mobile book? voting. So, and I've got a book coming out on this uh, next year from Sourcebooks, which is a random house imprint. Uh, in fact, the final edits are due on Friday. This is the one. Uh, so thank you, but we're, we're pretty close. <laughs> and so a lot of the sort of stuff I've already talked about in this podcast, which is I spent all this time in politics and kind of learned that every policy output is the result of a political input. And then I ran these campaigns for Uber and saw that the same people who were never voting in city council primaries, state senate primaries, things like that, were willing to advocate for us because they could do it from their phone, right? And so the question was, what if we could vote this way? Wouldn't that really increase turnout? And the problem we have right now is because of gerrymandering, the only election that ever really matters is the primary. And primary turnout in this country is typically 10 to 15%. So who are those voters? They're the furthest left wing, they're the furthest right wing, or they're special interests that can kind of move money and votes and a little turnout election. And so the message to politicians is, you know, you got to be ultra pure. That's why we see this craziness right now and the Republicans not able to pick a speaker because everyone has to be so ideologically extreme um, because the few people who actually do show up to vote, that's what they want. And my view is politicians will do whatever they need to do to stay in office. So let's say you're a Republican congressman from Florida and turn out your primary is 12% and half of those voters are NRA members. You're never going to vote for an assault weapon ban because even though you know intellectually that it's crazy that someone could walk into a store and walk out with an AK-47, you also know that you would lose your seat immediately if you said that you were for it or we should even think about it. And so as a result, it never happens. But imagine if turnout in that same primary were 36% instead of 12%, simply because we made it much easier to vote, then just based on all the polling we see around assault weapons, your view would flip because you want to keep your job and you would only keep your job if you supported an assault weapons ban. So if we want the views of the majority to become our laws, to become our policies, if we want the two parties to actually work together and get things done, um, we've got to empower them to do so. And they're only going to do it if they feel safe politically. And they're only going to feel safe politically to do that if turnout is exponentially higher in primaries. So in 2018, I created this thing called the Mobile Voting Project, where we started funding elections in different states where either deployed military or people with disabilities were voting in real elections on their phones. Um, We ended up paying uh, for seven states, 21 jurisdictions to do these elections. Um, They were all independently audited by the National Cybersecurity Center and came back clean. Turnout on average doubled. Um, City of Denver did a poll of the people who participated and 100% said they preferred it because, of course, you prefer to send your phone than having to go somewhere. But the cybersecurity community was sort of very worked up that it wasn't secure enough. And so in 2020, we started a tech bill to build our own mobile voting technology, funded it out of my foundation. And three years and $10 million later, we are just about done. Uh, we are going to o- release the, the the software next January. It's going to be free and open source. Anybody who wants to use it can have it. People can build on it. And then I've got a book coming out about it. And the next step is really to be, to hopefully, it's going to be really hard, but build a movement to demand this. Because ironically, if you want to unite the parties, the one thing that will bring Republicans, Democrats together, as well as every union and every lobbyist, and every trade group, is to change the system and make it more likely that they could lose power. And so the only way that we're going to win this thing is that I can get millions of people in Gen Z and Gen Alpha, just like we got for Uber, to to demand it. And so that's kind of the next big thing is, is rolling out the mobile voting technology and then hopefully building this movement so that we can make it happen. That's amazing. And I wonder that every time I'm there, I'm like, there has to be a better way. Like what? There on is, earth? there is, there is, there is. Uh, and we have built it uh, and we will be sharing with the world very soon. Amazing. Well, I'm just going to follow along with all the things you invent forever because, you know, you're, you're sort of looking out for the maximum efficiency of the rest of us. So thank you for Brian. that. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's it's fine. Look, to your point about like sort of sliding doors and everything else, like I got lucky in a lot of ways from from being able to to be born in, in this country and be free and safe to different opportunities that came along over time and lucky to make some money. And my view is. I just want to do the things that really interest me and kind of use the resources I have to do things that I think are important, especially for things that other people aren't taking on. And so, yeah, as a result, kind of the stuff that I do looks pretty weird and random, but makes sense to me and I like it. And, you know, if you go to BradleyTouch.com, you can kind of get updates on all the different stuff we're doing. I did not say it was weird and random. I think it's... <laughs> no, I, I think it's <laughs> Okay, for, just to be I think most people think it is, right? You, you understand it, but you're... Hold on. One might argue that someone who chooses to open up an indie bookstore and write a novel and do the podcast and all the stuff that you do might also be a little weird, right? So <laughs> you may not be the best judge. Fair. Fair point. I'll take it. <laughs> Bradley, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, uh, congratulations on your book. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.